Our Father, we pray now as we come before your word that you would do what you always do with it, which is to make your people more like Christ. Pray you would keep us free from error as we study it, and that you would transform our hearts. Lord, we pray you would do this all to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we open up God's word this morning, I'd ask that you turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be studying verses 9 through 11. And as you turn there, I'd like to ask you a question. If you are one who takes notes during the sermon, I'd ask you actually to write this question down. And the question is, what is the evidence that I am a Christian? What is the evidence that I am a Christian? And this is a big question, and there would probably be varying degrees of response for those who are here listening this morning. For some of you who are here, your answer may be, there's no evidence that you're a Christian. You haven't confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You have not repented of your sins. You have not placed your trust in Christ as your Savior. You haven't been baptized like we saw at Julia being baptized this morning, and you don't claim to be a Christian, and so there wouldn't be any evidence. And, and if that's you, I, I plead with you to listen intently this morning to this sermon. I pray you would hear the gospel that is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. For others of you, though, who are here, you have believed on Christ for salvation or may or consider yourself a Christian, but you may not know a good answer to that question. What is the evidence I'm a Christian? Or you may have a false idea of what the evidence is that you are a Christian. And if that's you, if you write that question down and look at it and don't really know what to write, this text, I pray you listen intently because this text will present you with clear signs of the work of the Spirit evident in the life of the Christian helping to either give assurance of your salvation or further convicting you of the path of Christian obedience. And a lot of faces I recognize here, so many of you may have an answer to that question. And what is the evidence that I'm a Christian? And I pray that you also would, would listen. I'm praying everyone would listen to me this morning as I teach, that you would give me your ear because this text will help to sharpen your observation of the evidences of grace in your life and by so doing, I believe, spur you on to further Christ-likeness. It will be a means, this text will be a means of Christ completing the work that was begun in you. So at the end of the day, we're all going to have to answer this question. And I said this question is a big question. And the reason why, what is the evidence that I'm a Christian, is a, is a big question. It's one that's important for us to consider. is because the stakes of the answer to that question are enormous. And you may have kind of picked up as we've gone through our service already some of the aspects of the Christian faith through the songs we've sung and the prayers we've prayed, the scriptures we've read. But we, we know the stakes of the answer to that question, the, the consequences of which way you answer, because we have the Bible, the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is that God, the creator God, the God who we're told in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, the God who formed your very body in your mother's womb, 
the God who is completely holy and righteous, he created the world good, but creation rebelled against God, bringing sin into God's good creation. And because the wages of sin is death, and because God is righteous and just, because he is holy, and holiness cannot mix with unholiness, because righteousness cannot mix with unrighteousness, and because he is just, he must judge unrighteousness, which all culminates in the damning of the unrighteous to eternal punishment in hell on the final day of judgment. Who are these unrighteous whose sin must be punished? The story of the Bible, the, God's word tells us that all are unrighteous, everyone. We are all born into sin, and so we are all destined for eternal punishment in hell. But the gospel, the good news, is that the creator God sent his own son, Jesus, into the world to save the unrighteous. Jesus, living a perfect life of righteousness, the life that mankind should have lived. And yet this Jesus received the punishment for sin, bearing the punishment of mankind's sin by dying the death that mankind should have died, dying on a wooden cross, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, thereby providing a way for the unrighteous who believe in Jesus to have his life, his sacrifice, his righteousness counted for them. So Christians then, what it means to be a Christian, Christians then are those who are deemed righteous on account of Christ's atoning sacrifice for their sin on the cross. And for those who believe this good news, not only are they counted righteous, but because Christ's death counted for them, Christ's resurrection from the dead also counts for them. They will be raised with Christ, with him, on the day of Christ. So these are the stakes of the question, uh, the stakes of the question, what is the evidence that I'm a Christian? If I am a Christian, if there's evidence I'm a Christian, I'm counted righteous, my sins are paid for, and my body will be raised to eternal life on the day of Christ, just as his was raised. If I am not a Christian, if there is no evidence, I am counted as unrighteous, my sins must still receive their wages, and my body will be damned to eternal punishment on the day of Christ, enduring the death that sin rightfully deserves. So the question for every adult and teenager and child here this morning is a really big question. And for anyone who's younger than age 18, this is the reason why your parents have been so diligent in trying to teach you this gospel, this good news, because the stakes are really important. What is the evidence that I am a Christian? And so I hope for all of us as we come away this morning from this service that we'll have a better answer than when we started. For, for folks like Julia, who is just baptized, that this will be reassurance for her, for you, of, of your salvation. So this letter we are looking at this morning, Philippians, is a letter by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. It was a city in modern-day northeast Greece, and these Philippian church members were Christians. This, this church that he's writing to, that the Apostle Paul is writing to, is made up of folks like those mentioned in Acts chapter 16. You may know some of these names, like Lydia, whose heart, we're told, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, was opened to respond to Paul's message. 
Folks like the Roman jailer likely were part of this church who we are told in Acts 16.34 came to believe in God and surely made up of folks like those mentioned later in this letter in Philippians chapter 4, Euodia and Syntyche and Clement, who Paul describes as fellow workers in the gospel in verse 3. Paul writes as he's considering these Christians in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that these Christians are those whom God has begun a good work in and they're Christians of whom Paul is sure that this good work will be brought to completion at the day of Christ. So what, what we're reading here is that Paul is writing to a church full of Christians and as he thinks about their faith, which is this initial good work that's been begun in them in verse 6, that he's thinking and praying about how it will be completed. And that's important for us, this link back to verse 6 as we study verses 9 through 11. Because as we come to our text, it's following from the same train of thought in verse 6. Paul prays for these Philippian Christians about how this good work that was begun in them will be brought to completion. How the who of who they are now in Christ is to become increasingly manifest. It's a prayer for how the thing that's happened in their hearts, something we call regeneration, is to work its way into their lives, something we call sanctification. And Paul doesn't envision these two, one of these things happening without the other. This is the message of verse 6. He who began a good work in you, regeneration, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Sanctification. And we know sanctifications end from Romans chapter 6, verse 22. When Paul writes, sanctification's end is eternal life. So as we seek to answer the question, what is the evidence that I am a Christian? That's why we're looking at this particular text. The un it's the underlying logic of the whole introduction to this letter of the Apostle Paul. The irreversible work has been begun in the Philippians, regeneration, verse 6, and the irreversible work is continuing to completion in the Philippians via sanctification, verses 9 through 11. So then, this process of being completed, I would submit, gives evidence of the work begun and of the work that God is bringing to completion. It gives evidence of Christianity. And so what we'll see now in verses 9 through 11 is four evidences of Christianity, four signs of sanctification, four proofs of the work being brought to completion in the life of a Christian. So first, in verse 9, the evidence of Christianity is abounding love. Second, the evidence of Christianity is discerning knowledge. We'll see that also in verse 9. Third, the evidence of Christianity is approving what is excellent. We'll see that in verse 10. And the evidence of Christianity is fruit, verse 11. So let's read our text together. If you have your Bible open to Philippians chapter 1, this is Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's prayer that he references here for the Philippians, as the good work is being completed in them, is that as they are being sanctified, is that it would be demonstrated by their love abounding more and more. And now if you had, you had received this letter, one of the first things you may be asking yourself is, is what is this love that 
Paul is talking about. Who is this love for? What kind of love is it? The Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter, likely from prison, and so he's praying you know, for the Philippian church from jail, and yet finds it important to pray that their love would abound. So what is this love? Is it, there's, there's all different kinds of love. There's, there's romantic-style love. There's, you know, what is this love that must be abounding? And so we're gonna, we should try to understand that. And our first clue, as we try to understand what this love that Paul is referring to is, is the modifier we see here in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. It is somehow a love that the Philippians already possess to some degree. So then, the question would lead, what love do they possess? What is their love? Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that God's love, this is Romans chapter 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the love of God has been poured into the Philippians' hearts by the Holy Spirit. That is a love, surely, they, they now possess. And a second clue, I think as we further try to zero in on what this love is, I think we can find from our text we read earlier in John chapter 15, where we see that the Christian is the one who abides in Christ's love. In John chapter 15, verses 9 through 10, Jesus states, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And what I'd like to submit is that this love of Christ, this love that abides in the Christian, is, is the love that Paul later references in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, when he writes that the love of Christ controls us. As the Philippians, as we, as we abide in Christ's love, we become one with Christ, and his love controls us. As we are connected to the vine, with the nutrients from the vine, namely love flowing to us, Christ's love flowing through us, it sanctifies us, it abounds in us. The love becomes ours to a certain degree. And so to summarize, what is this love? I would submit that the love the Philippians possess is a sort of divine love. It's the love that's been set on them, poured out on them, which abounds in them and controls them by virtue of their abiding in Christ and being filled with the Spirit. It's not a romantic love that's to be abounding more and more. It's, it's this divine love of God, the love of Christ. And since this love is to be abounding more and more, that would... I, I, to me, begs the question of where is this love to be directed? Is it just uh, this? Is it some kind of divine love that's just flowing out without discrimination? Does it? Where, where is it to be directed? And as we once again look to the scriptures, we know we could understand this love to be rightly pointed in several different directions. First, our love for God. God's people are to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul, and mind, and strength, as we read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Second, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, as we are told in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And, and as a kind of sub-point to that love of neighbor, our love for our neighbor is to be to such a degree, to such an intensity, that we even love our enemies, as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5. So these loves, the love of God, the love of neighbor, 
These are the first two great commandments as Jesus himself ties these together in Matthew chapter 22. So love of God, love of neighbor, where are these loves to be directed at? And then in John 13, verse 34, Jesus gives us a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And that one another is referring to fellow believers, folks here in this room. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how is your love, this divine love that's poured into us and that abides in us and controls us, how is it to be directed? Who is it to be directed at? We are to love the Lord our God, to love our neighbor, to love one another. Jesus says, and we read this earlier in John 15, if you abide in me, you will keep my commandments. And these are the commandments we are to keep that sum up the Christian life. The love of Christ flowing out of the Christian toward rightful ends is what it means for your love to be abounding more and more. It's what Paul prayed for the Philippian church. And here's where I would just pose a question to everyone here this morning. Is your love abounding more and more? Is there, is there a chance that if someone looked at your life, and would that person say, that person is bursting with, saturated with, stuffed with, overflowing with love for God, love for neighbor, love for one another. And I'll just say here, since we are all not yet what we ought to be, we all know that, we are all not yet perfect, what would, we can all take a next step in this direction. So what would a next step in this direction, I'd ask, look like for you? Maybe for the year ahead, it's more disciplined Bible study, trying to love the Lord your God by knowing him as he's revealed himself in his word. Maybe it's, it's growing in your love of neighbor by sharing the gospel with a, with a friend that you have. Maybe it's growing in your love for one another by learning to be hospitable in a new way or sharing with what you have with someone else. So let's all pursue abounding love together in this year ahead. We can all make that a goal. We'll never be perfect this side of, this side of heaven. So if you wrote down love as your answer to what is the evidence that I'm a Christian? Correct, yes. Um, maybe love was your answer, and I guess we could maybe just stop there. That's, that's a correct answer. But this is where the second evidence of Christianity is critical. Knowledge and discernment. Because the scary thing is that you can be claiming to be full of love, you can be claiming to be loving God and loving your neighbor and loving one another, but not actually be a Christian. And the reason would be is that what you are calling love is not actually love. And what helps us understand that, that, this, that that's a possibility, is this second evidence of Christian faith, knowledge and discernment. Paul writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment. The term knowledge here we see frequently used throughout Paul's letters in kind of two senses, oftentimes in where it's pointed at. First, in the in of knowledge of God. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34, 
you wanted to write these down, 2 Corinthians 2.14, where Paul's referring in his letters, he's author of this letter to the Philippians as well, to the knowledge of God when he's speaking of knowledge. We also see it referenced in the sense of knowledge of the truth, as in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, and Titus 1, verse 1. And it is in these senses, knowledge of God, knowledge of the truth, that I believe Paul is speaking here when he says our love is to abound with knowledge. The Christian, he, he, all through Paul's letters, if you, if you read them all in one sitting, it'd be hard to come away with any other idea than, our, than knowledge is critical to the Christian faith. The Christian is to be full of all knowledge, Romans 15, 14. Excelling in knowledge, 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Renewed in knowledge, Colossians 3, verse 10. And this knowledge of God and of the truth is critical to be a part of our love because it shapes our love. It orients our love. It informs everything about what we just discussed, what love is. Paul then further expounds that this knowledge is to be paired with discernment. And the Greek term here translated discernment it could also be rendered perception or judgment. We see that in some other translations. And it gets at the way that the senses in particular perceive or judge a particular thing. How we, how we, how we could say, um, how we sniff out the true nature of something. And we see something actually similar being hinted at in the book of Hebrews. When the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 is he speaking and warning the church of apostasy. Um, he calls them to spiritual maturity through the solid food of the scriptures. And he writes, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern, to distinguish good from evil. Likewise, Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he speaks of the Christian's transformed mind being able to, by testing, he writes, discern what is the will of God. So discernment is a sense, a sort of power, you could say. For those of you who are Marvel Comics fans, it's kind of like a Christian spidey sense, you could say, by which one sniffs out what is good and that which is evil. In, in practice, discernment, I think, looks something, looks something like this. It's the church member who has faithfully read their Bible, who has sat under biblical preaching, who's regularly communing with the Lord in prayer, who hears some new, modern, false teaching and says, well, that doesn't sound right. Discernment is, is what, what ticks off that sense of, of, of discerning what's good from evil. And then that Christian destroys arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That is the all discernment that is being referenced here. And it's the mark of a Christian. It's the evidence of Christianity. So just as you could discern a, a fake Spider-Man by someone who you could walk right up to and tap them on the shoulder and they wouldn't know you were there, so also a Christian without discernment would give away that they're, they're not a, really a Christian. So then, our love is to abound more and more in this kind of knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of the truth, and in this kind of discernment, sort of discernment that is trained by constant practice to discern what is good from evil, that sniffs out. And I'd submit then that what we did when we defined love earlier was actually an example of knowledge and discernment in practice. We take every argument, we take every opinion, 
we take every word, including, including the word love, and we take it back to God's word to find its definition, to find its proper context, to find its proper application, testing it to discern what is the will of God, trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And as, as a quick aside here, consider this. Without the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the truth, without the scriptures as our guide, absent discernment, what would our love, for example, look like? If we didn't have this the, the revealed word from God to define our love, what would it look like? Well, if you just kind of look at the world around us, you could get a picture of that. Love is the guiding ethic of our age, but love, the love that's around us, worldly love, looks nothing like this biblical love. In fact, it's just an, uh, an ever-shifting concept to fit the whims of cultural progressive norms. Love, by the shape-shifting definitions of our culture, as opposed to the knowledge of God and of the truth, means doing whatever makes someone feel accepted. It's an accommodating, a surrendering, sacrificial gesture and posture that affirms someone in whatever action they desire to undertake or undertakes whatever action someone else wants you to undertake. Now, someone may say, well, Gabe, the, the reading... If you keep reading in Philippians, you'll see Jesus take this sort of posture. He laid down his interests for the sake of others. Clearly, that's what love is. It's love means is whatever someone wants you to do to feel loved. I mean, the Philippians, they're later called to count others more significant than yourselves. Maybe, maybe you've heard that argument that, that love should be this sort of shape-shifting to whatever someone uh, desires it to be. And therefore, we've heard maybe people would say that the trajectory of love in our culture actually squares well with the scriptures. But here is what we all must establish deep in our hearts. And I, I pray everyone would hear this, especially those who are high school and college age, because this is where you're being hit the hardest right now. The sort of thinking that would set the virtue of love up against knowledge and discernment, which is exactly what our culture is doing, when it's telling you to embrace an unmoored, ill-defined, shape-shifting love ethic, the sort of thinking that would set the second great commandment up against the first commandment, telling you that loving your neighbor justifies departing from loving the God of the Bible as he requires himself to be loved, namely by obeying his commandments, this sort of thinking is demonic. And it's the exact logic that Satan used to tempt our Lord Jesus in the desert. Our love is to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And so if we find that a purported application of one biblical text is requiring us to disobey another biblical text, discernment, our Christian sort of spidey sense, must tell us that the first application is wrong and represents an opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now, back to our text. Paul now continues with the next stage in his description of his prayer for the Philippians and what is our next evidence then that someone is a Christian. So first, it's abounding love. Second, it's knowledge and discernment. And now here, third, he writes, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. As Christians, we must approve 
things. We, we must make judgments about what is excellent. And our job is to do that within the bounds of God's revelation. What we approve, this, this third evidence of a Christian, is the outworking of abounding love, this first evidence, and with knowledge and discernment. So what we approve is the outworking of abounding love with knowledge and discernment. The moral judgments we make are an outworking of how the love and knowledge and discernment are interacting. Proper love, you can kind of think of it like a formula. Proper love plus correct knowledge plus trained discernment equals approving what is excellent. And what we know about a math formula is if you take a piece out of that formula or change a piece of the formula, well, the answer changes. And the formula breaks down. And in the same way, this means, I would submit to you, that it's possible to have a lot of knowledge and, quote, discernment and ultimately not approve what is excellent. Because if you don't have love, proper love, it profits you nothing. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. Likewise, it's possible to have a lot of love, abounding love in your opinion, and not approve what is excellent. If you don't have knowledge of God and discernment, your love will be incorrectly oriented. This sanctification formula, proper love plus correct knowledge plus trained discernment equals approving what is excellent, it breaks down if one of the pieces is missing. So what does it look like when this equation gets out of whack? What happens when approving what is excellent goes wrong? Well, two examples I want to focus on here. As one example, consider the Nashville statement on gender and sexuality. You know, if everyone here has heard of that, it's a confessional document that was put together several years ago on gender and sexuality. And it states, and I believe correctly states, that approval of homosexual immorality or transgenderism is not a matter of moral indifference about with which otherwise faithful Christians should agree to disagree. Now, now why is this? Why would, why would this Nashville statement make that assertion? It's directly because our faith, our love, the evidences of our Christianity are proved, proved out in whether the things we are approving are consistent with love, bounded by the knowledge of God and discernment. And so approving of immorality, even if we are not participating in it, is still sinful. It's not approving what is, ex it's not approving what is excellent. And therefore, it puts someone at risk of not being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And so in this case, we can't let our love be set up against the knowledge of God and his commandments regarding gender. We must approve what is excellent. That means we cannot be affirming of that which is not excellent. And when someone does not approve what is excellent, they're at best showing signs of poor discernment and spiritual maturity and showing they're on a dangerous path and at worst, they're showing signs that they're not a Christian. Love without discernment does not produce the fruit of righteousness. But lest we focus in only one direction, there is a counter-temptation that it is possible for our knowledge and discernment to abound without love, leading us to, again, not approve what is excellent. The formula breaks down. It can break down in, in, in multiple directions. So what would that look like? Well, we know what love is. And so 
So knowledge and discernment without love, it would look like a knowledge and discernment that approves of that which is not patient and kind. A knowledge and discernment that is arrogant and rude, that insists on its own way, that is irritable and resentful. A knowledge and discernment that rejoices at the chance to call out wrongdoing and disregards affirmations of the truth. A knowledge and discernment that doesn't bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. And let me tell you, just like this happens the opposite direction out in the world, this happens way too much in our own Christian circles. What counts as discernment blogging and, and tweeting is often nothing more than loveless, unprofitable bickering. An example of where this knowledge and discernment without love where that error can lead to ultimately, look at the book of Acts. Look at, the, look at Saul. Consider the apostle Paul, who before he came to Christ, full of his own version of knowledge and discernment, he was trained in the law as well as anyone could be. And he approved of Stephen's murder, we're told, in Acts 8.1. Knowledge without proper love can lead in horrible directions. So brothers and sisters, like the sexually deviant culture around us that wants to set up love against knowledge and discernment, we must be on guard in our conservative environment against unwittingly setting knowledge and discernment up against love. And once again, when someone does not approve what is excellent in this way, when our knowledge and discernment doesn't lead toward approving what is excellent, they're at best showing signs of poor discernment and spiritual immaturity and at worst, they're showing signs that they're not a Christian. Discernment without love does not produce the fruit of righteousness. So the evidences of Christianity are love abounding more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Both of them must be there. So that you may approve what is excellent. And approving what is excellent, I hope I made a, a reasonable case for, it cuts both directions. Now, Paul has been describing the evidences of Christianity. I think we, we see that in verses 9 through 11. We've seen that signs of the Spirit at work in us, the regeneration having taken place, our love abounding more and more, knowledge and all discernment, approving what is excellent. And it's here I want to reemphasize why these are evidences of Christianity. And that's because they are a part of, of our sanctification. They're a part of, like I mentioned at the beginning, of the completing of the work begun in us that was begun by regeneration, as Julia attested to this morning. Paul writes that his prayer is that the Philippians' love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent. And then this next phrase, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This phrase, and so be, uh, this phrase, and so be, is tied directly back to the process of loving, of applying discernment, of approving what is excellent. This process is how the Christian is sanctified and made pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It is through seeking to obey God's commandments to love, taking the situations that we face back to his word to understand how to discern, and then approving what is excellent through our love that we are made in the image of Christ, that God works in us. This is sanctification at work. And the end result of sanctification is pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and ultimately, eternal life. And when this process is at work in our lives, it has the effect of filling us 
with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Our fourth evidence of Christianity, bearing fruit. I think it's fitting that the Philippians' love, the love that they possess in Christ, the kind of love that comes from abiding in Christ, the true vine, would lead toward this fruit of righteousness that also comes through Jesus Christ. As we abide in Christ, John records Jesus stating, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What are these fruits of righteousness that will be coming from the Christian? Well, I'd submit to you they are the very actions that come out of approving what is excellent through love and knowledge and discernment. Proper and growing love of God is a fruit of righteousness. Proper and growing love of neighbor. Proper and growing love for the brothers and sisters. And this all comes through abiding in Christ. Remember, we cannot accomplish this righteous fruit on our own. Jesus tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. One, one potential reaction to, to understanding that sanctification, that this work in us is, is evidence um, that you're a Christian, one, one possible response to, to the truth that sanctification is evidence you're a Christian is to think, well, geez, I've got to start working really hard and make sure I produce enough fruit to pass the test someday. That's one, one potential reaction. But here's the thing. If you try to live your life self-producing righteous fruit, you'll just exhaust yourself. It would be like a grape branch trying to grow grapes without being connected to a vine. I mean, just think of how silly it would be if I had a, you know, a grape you know, vine trellis next to me here and there's just a little twig sitting there, just suspended in midair. It, it would be foolish to think that any sort of fruit would grow from that branch. But if that branch is joined to the vine, if there's a source of fuel, if there's a source of nutrients, well, fruit can grow from that branch. And this is the picture of our sanctification and of our Christianity, we are attached to the vine that is Christ. That happens when we're given new hearts, when we're regenerated. We are secure in our salvation. And then abounding in love, the fuel of our sanctification that's coming from the vine, like nutrients coming from the, the vine out to the branches, and rooted in the soil that is soaked with knowledge and discernment. Well, there's growth of approving what is excellent the very fruit of righteousness. And this growth, this sanctification, it truly is all, as Paul writes here, to the glory and praise of God. Sanctification is how man's chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it's, it's how that chief end is accomplished, sanctification. And how that happens is through our abounding love, informed by the knowledge of God and trained discernment, that works itself out into the approval of that which is excellent by the Spirit, by the, by the power of the Spirit, through Jesus Christ. We glorify God, we, we glorify Him as we are being sanctified and made into the image of Christ, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable to God, our spiritual worship. Sanctification by these means, outlined in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 is the evidence of our Christianity. And so to the person here this morning who says, 
amen. Maybe, you know, as you wrote down your answer, you wrote down love, but you, you got all the pieces right. If you wrote down abounding love with knowledge and discernment that approve what is excellent, if that was your answer to the question, what is the evidence I'm a Christian? I would say to you, excel still more, in the words of Brother J.O. May your love for God, may your love for neighbor, may your love for the brothers be infectious. May you be pursuing deeper knowledge of God, taking advantages of, of all the opportunities both in this church and here in Louisville to learn more about God and the truth of the scriptures. May your discernment be trained to increasingly recognize that which would rise up against the knowledge of God. And may you have no reason to condemn yourself for what you approve. These are the evidence of your Christianity, abounding love, knowledge and discernment, approving what is excellent, bearing fruit. These are the evidences of your Christianity. And may your assurance of your salvation be strengthened as you abide in Christ and bear much fruit. And to cap it all off, if, if you're in that camp, may all that you do be done in love. That's the way Paul over and over again seems to sum up what we're to be doing. Now, to the person here this morning who didn't have a great answer to the question, what is the evidence that I'm a Christian? To you, I would say, well, now you know. Here, here's, here's four evidences that you can look for. Jesus tells us, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, by doing this, loving, you will know that you are of the truth and will reassure your heart before the Lord. So may the truth of God's love poured into your heart and abiding in you affirm your salvation and motivate you to abounding love. May your sanctification deepen as you make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, including the desire to approve those things that are not excellent. And may the bearing of fruit of righteousness in your life be evident, knowing that it is God who wills and works to his good pleasure in your life. He will bring the good work he has begun in you to completion. And lastly, to the person this morning who said, there's no evidence that I'm a Christian. I don't evidence, or maybe you've come to realize that, that you don't evidence real divine love. You don't evidence knowledge and discernment. There are no fruits of righteousness. You haven't believed the gospel message that one must trust in Christ for salvation and for new life. Maybe you've realized this morning that you're in that group that is still unrighteous. You haven't been baptized. I would say to you, come to Jesus. He's calling you. Whether you're six years old or 96 years old, the Lord in his kindness is calling you to repent, to believe, and ultimately to love, to love him and experience the abiding love of Christ. I pray you would remember that the stakes are high. Evidence of Christianity on the day of Christ means eternal life, the work being completed. No evidence, no work being completed on the day of Christ means eternal damnation. I pray you would believe and experience the peace that comes from a life that produces these evidences of the hope of eternal life.
God's very spirit working within you to sanctify you, helping you to love with knowledge and discernment. He's the one who will help, help it happen so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, all of which comes, it all begins with faith in Jesus Christ and all will end to the glory and praise of the God who created you. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that your word would have its effect. Lord, we pray you would cause us to be more like Christ. We thank you for the work you have done in so many hearts here to cause new life to grow. We pray you would strengthen the assurance of salvation in your people as, as we see the evidences of your grace at work in our lives. Abounding love, knowledge and discernment, approving what is excellent, bearing much fruit. And Lord, I pray for any of those who heard this word this morning, Lord, that you would cause it to be a seed that falls on good soil. Lord, please bring the growth, I pray. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, who died and rose again, giving us the hope of eternal life. Amen.